If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the second History Extra podcast for September 2012. Here's what we have in store for you this week. At the end of the First World War, there were two million disabled war veterans coming back from the front to Britain. That was Simon Jarrett talking about disability history. It was the people who grew up during the economic crisis of the 20s and 30s who realised never again, we're not going to allow merchants to dominate to this extent. And that was David Priestland on the rise, fall and rise of the merchant in global history. listening to the History Extra podcast, which is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine. You can find the magazine in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this, plus great subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. If you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash historyextra, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash historyextra. A recent project by English Heritage has tracked the influence of disabled communities on the historic built environment, finding out how people with disabilities have been seen throughout history and how they've seen themselves. The magazine's section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Simon Jarrett, a contributor on the project, to find out more about changing attitudes to disability. As you'll gather from some of the content, this interview took place a couple of weeks ago while the Paralympic Games were still going on. OK, Simon, so what was the actual aim of the English Heritage Project on Disability? Well, one of the main objectives of um, English Heritage is to tell the story of England and to tell it through its buildings and its landscapes. And um, the aim of this project was to bring disability into that story, to look at how um, disabled people have always been uh, a part of the community um, and that they have uh, influenced the buildings and landscapes of the country and that the country's uh, buildings and landscapes have in in turn um, influenced them. And so we've tried to look at how ideas of disability have changed over time so we don't really see this as a a narrative of progress where we're saying that uh, 
Uh, everything was terrible in the Middle Ages and it's uh, all progressed and is all very good now. But we've tried to look at how people's perceptions of disability have changed, how disabled people's perceptions of disability have themselves changed as well. And we've also tried, uh, we're covering a very long chronological period. We go from the medieval period right through to the um, present day. And uh, one of the things we're trying to do there is say that the history of disability is not just about asylums, about the 19th century asylum movement. That's always loomed very large in disability history and it clearly is very important but one of the things that we um, are trying to demonstrate uh, in, in this work is that there were 800 years before that period when people with disabilities didn't live in asylums and lived very different lives in their communities. So going back to the beginning of the project how were disabled people treated in the medieval periods? Well the medieval periods um, very interesting because at that time um, people were able to hold several apparently contradictory views about dis disability um, simultaneously. So if you had a disability this could be seen as um, having a divine explanation and being a, uh, a punishment from God, uh, a punishment to yourself or to your um, family. Um, yet at the same time it could also be seen that because you were suffering on earth your suffering was similar to the suffering of Jesus it's obviously a very um, religious society in, in, in the medieval period and that for that reason you were closer to God and because you were closer to God it was therefore important for people to be able to associate themselves with you either by um, performing charitable works and supporting you or um, by donating charitable funds um, you could also be seen as having a disability because you were born under the influence of Saturn, which had a, could have a bad influence on people and make them disabled or make them into um, criminals. So there could be astrological um, explanations too. So there were a number of um, different views and theories held about disability at the time. And it's a particularly fascinating period because of um, leprosy. Um, and... Uh, Leprosy was probably the, the chief disabling condition of the time. Now, it's something that we're not really familiar with now, it having pretty much died out in, in Western Europe. And there are also being medical treatments which can prevent the um, uh, disabling consequences of leprosy uh, for those that do have it. But in the medieval period, it was, it was huge, and it was probably the largest disabling condition uh, that was around at the time. And between the 11th century and the 14th century, there were around 300 leper houses or lazar houses run by religious institutions which were built. And so it's our first example of an actual institutional building response to a disability. And we look at these quite a lot in the in the project. And there's a lot of uh, current research, and um, particularly from Carol Rawcliffe at the University of East Anglia, which sees leprosy and leper houses in a in a very different way to um, how they've traditionally been conceived. And um, this idea that the leper was a very isolated person who was shunned by society, who went around with a bell or some clappers to let people know that they were coming, so that people could could run away is seen pretty much as a as really a Victorian concept of what leprosy um, was about at that time. And in fact, in reality, leper houses, lazar houses were far more integrated uh, than we might imagine. They were set on the uh, edges of towns, um, but there was a lot of commerce between the houses and the town in terms of trade. Uh, lepers were able to leave leper houses to visit friends and relatives. Townspeople came in to bring in goods and, and services. And even leper houses which were out in the countryside had to be near to routes, particularly routes of pilgrims, so that lepers were able to uh, go out and beg alms and say prayers uh, on behalf of uh, people's relatives or whatever. So um, leper houses were, were very interesting, very much an integrated part of medieval society. This changed after the Black Death in the second half of the 14th century when people became 
because of the terrible experience of the Black Death, people became much more worried about contagion and um, disease and did in fact begin to shun lepers and leper houses. But ironically, this was at the very time when leprosy began to um, recede. We're not quite sure why it receded, but one possibility is that population uh, built up immunity, those people that had survived the Black Death, and leprosy therefore um, slowly died out as a disabling condition in the country. So if the medieval period is sort of known for its religious treatment of disabled people, what impact did the dissolution of the monasteries have during the Tudor era? had a very significant impact, um, probably an unforeseen and unintended impact, but with um, institutional care for people with disabilities and disabling conditions having been provided by religious orders of nuns and monks, when the monasteries were um, dissolved and shut down and ransacked during the 1530s, that did mean that large numbers of uh, disabled people who'd been receiving this care were actually thrown onto the streets. Um, now it became a, quite a big social issue and there was a certain amount of um, social protest under Henry VIII and Edward VI and, and later um, Elizabeth about the very large numbers of uh, people who were described as helpless or, or impotent who'd previously been living in religious houses who were now dying on the uh, streets and had no um, method for survival um, and no prospects for care. And this led to quite a significant shift because what happened was that a number of the religious houses and hospitals that had been closed during the dissolution were reformed, but they reformed not as religious institutions, evidently with the Reformation now having happened, they were no longer led by uh, nuns and monks, but as much more secular institutions, often managed by um, boards of governors from institutions such as the, as the City of London. So you had a long period um, of, of around 20 to 30 years where there was very little development following the dissolution of new hospitals or almshouses or so on. But slowly these were reformed, a new building began and in the second half of the 16th century there was quite a surge in the building of um, almshouses which were for aged or infirmed or, or disabled um, people. But what you found that um, was now, these, these were still charitable institutions and you had a lot of um, successful commercial merchants and people like that donating funds towards them. And this was no longer seen as a way of speeding your passage to heaven, but was much more about demonstrating your influence and your worth on earth. And uh, as we go into the 17th century, we see that the design of, of new hospitals is much grander and is a way of demonstrating um, commercial and secular power of, um, of London and its inhabitants. So, I mean, so far you've mentioned disabled people at the sort of poorer end of society. Is there any evidence of disabled people in elite circles? There's some really interesting examples which demonstrate that people with disabilities have um, always existed across all levels of society. There's some particularly fascinating research that's been done by um, Susanna Lipscomb, the uh, Tudor historian, and uh, she's looked at the uh, archives at Hampton Court and has identified a number of people who were uh, fools in Henry VIII's um, court at Hampton Palace who... Um, there seems to be quite strong evidence that these people were actually natural fools, which is broadly concurrent with the definition we'd have today of a person with a, with a learning disability. People could be defined either as natural fools, which meant that they were uh, born foolish, to use the terminology of the time, or artificial fools, which means that there were people who played at being fools. She's looked particularly at uh, Will Soma, who was um, one of Henry's fools, a much-loved fool uh, in Henry's court. And the evidence is that although Will Soma lived very well, he had his own apartment, he dressed in fine clothes, he ate very fine food, he was not paid directly. He actually had a keeper 
who looked after his affairs and it suggests that um, he was deemed to be uh, unable to actually manage his own affairs in his in his daily life and actually needed someone to support him to do so. There were two other fools. There was a woman called Jane the Fool, who was at one time um, Anne Boleyn's um, fool, and a person called Sexton, who was nicknamed Patch, which was another word for fool at the time, who had the same thing. Uh, they were also supported by a keeper. They did not have their money paid directly to them. And there's a story about um, Patch, who was given to Henry VIII by Thomas More when Thomas More was trying to curry favour with the king, having fallen out of favour with him. And Patch was so distressed at leaving Thomas More's household that he actually had to be carried to the palace by six uh, tall, strong yeomen. Um, so there does seem to be quite a lot of evidence that suggests that uh, these were people who we'd, we, we might recognise as having learning disabilities today, who occupied an important position in court. What was that position? Well, we think that the reason they were valued um, was that actually they had no guile, they were very honest, they spoke directly, um, and so that Henry felt that people spoke the uh, truth to him if they were a, if they were a natural fool. Um, they were also allowed to do that because of their condition, and this was a very welcome um, antidote for Henry in the poisonous dishonest, deceptive atmosphere of the, uh, of the Tudor court. And um, uh, Will Somer and Jane the Fool became actually very much loved and uh, valued members of the royal family. Um, and it's an interesting example really that um, people at this time who had some sort of disability would be accepted and valued for their strengths and what they brought rather than simply being isolated and separated from society because they were different. And did that change going forward, that perception? Perceptions change radically um, throughout history, really, about disability. But we, we find interesting um, examples in other, in other periods. So in the 18th century, we have the example of um, Peter the Wild Boy, who was brought over from the forests of Hanover, where he'd been um, discovered uh, naked, unable to communicate, and with strange behaviours um, in the forests uh, near Hanover. And he was brought to the court of um, George I. Now, I think here, he, he, in the case of Peter the Wild Boy, he was seen very much as a curiosity and, and, and um, members of the elite from around the country came to the court to see Peter and to try and understand this un unusual phenomenon of this um, boy who, who seemed to have certain animal characteristics, if you like, having been found in a, in a forest. He's, he's understood today as somebody who probably had the condition known as, as Pitt Hopkins, which is a form of learning disability which arrests your, your development. And, and um, uh, when the fascination with Peter died away, uh, he actually went and lived in, in farms in, in Hertfordshire and his, uh, his grave still exists in, in Berkhamstead in, in Hertfordshire today. Um, you mentioned in the feature that disabled people would mainly have been cared for in their families and communities. When were places like asylums introduced? Well, the asylum movement began in the late 18th century. Um, there began to be a, a shift in opinion which um, began to understand mental illness as the loss of reason and that if people had lost their reason they then developed the idea that with the right sort of treatment and in the right sort of environment people could regain their reason and return sane to their to their families so to, uh, throughout the 18th century there were a number of um, madhouses uh, around britain um, which were small uh, small-scale um, institutional provision for people, um, well-off people from uh, the middle and upper classes whose families could uh, afford for them to have care. And um, the idea was that they would live in these environments, that they would have um, good diet, um, humane treatment, 
and um, humane uh, sort of stimulation and encouragement and support to recover. And by the end of the 18th century, there were a small number of voluntary, that, that is charitable, uh, asylums um, which uh, continued this idea and developed the idea of moral treatment which meant humane treatment, not using um, uh, restraint or punishment, but giving people a healthy and encouraging environment in which they could recover their, their sanity. Now, what then happened, um, because some of these were perceived as being um, quite successful, and the most famous one is the, um, the York Retreat, which was run by the Quaker uh, Tuke family um, in York, um, it was felt that this should become um, treatment that was available to everybody, including paupers, including you know the, dis the destitute and the impoverished. And so from 1815, local counties were allowed to build asylums, and this began quite slowly, and a small number of uh, these were actually Britain's first state hospitals rather than charitable hospitals. Uh, a small number of asylums were built around the country. Um, it really started to take off in the 1840s when uh, new legislation actually required um, counties to uh, build asylums. And um, by the end of the century, there were over 300 of these institutions, uh, many of them uh, ha housing uh, a thousand people or more. So there was a very big shift towards institutional asylum provision over that period. And what would life have been like in these places? The idea about how asylum should operate changed over the 19th century. So there was this initial idea that you would have moral and humane treatment. People would come in for a short amount of time um, and then return with, with their reason restored. This idea changed over time because that wasn't particularly successful and, and, and it was found that many people's uh, conditions were uh, far more severe and enduring than had been imagined. And so you really got a change in perception which became that Mentally ill people were dangerous and needed to be kept separate from mainstream society. So asylums became very much um, closed institutions. They were sited in rural areas um, and they were very separate uh, from the rest of the community. And what this meant was that they became um, self-contained communities in their own right. So you had large numbers of people, 60, 70 or more, living in a ward. Um, their beds were spaced two foot uh, six, two feet, two feet six inches apart from each other. Um, there was very little privacy and daily life was very highly regulated and very strictly controlled. Men and women were kept very strictly apart. There was a great fear that um, lunatics, as people were known at the time, and also idiots, as people with learning disabilities at the time were known, who were also in these asylums, uh, there was a great fear that people would breed um, and that this would cause um, problems to uh, the racial stock, if you like, in the, in the country. So the sexes were very strictly regulated. Um, they were quite incredible little communities, really, as well as the uh, wards. There were also workshops, there were farms, um, there were large laundries, there were great recreation halls, there were very much little towns in their own right. The Hanwell Asylum in West London actually used to grow its own produce, it was self-sufficient. It was situated next to the canal and, and surplus produce was actually uh, put on uh, to barges through what was known as the Asylum Gate and was then taken down to Covent Garden um, and sold to the London public and the funds raised from this went towards the running costs of the asylum. We look at another um, London asylum, Colney Hatch, which was the second Middlesex County pauper lunatic asylum. Its catchment area was uh, north and east London. It's actually contained a very large um, Jewish population uh, because there was a very large and impoverished Jewish community in East London. And what you found there was that you had kosher kitchens, you had Yiddish-speaking staff, um, and you had this sense of this very isolated but very complete small 
town. And after people had been in the asylum, after the asylum had been open for about 20 years, there were cats and dogs that were used to hunt vermin around the asylum grounds. Uh, people bred canaries and kept them as, as pets. There were workshops where people made shoes and trousers and shirts and blouses for the asylum inmates. So you've got this sort of rather bustling, multicultural little town which reflected um, the areas of London from which its patients were drawn. And how has provision for deaf and blind people changed through history? Well, I think the biggest changes really have been around um, communication and um, education. Um, there's evidence of uh, sign language being uh, used as, as far back as the um, 15th and 16th uh, centuries. And um, we also found what we think is the uh, first example of a sign language uh, wedding uh, conducted in a, in a London church in, uh, in Aldgate in the, uh, in the 16th century. Um, but what happened towards the, uh, the end of the 18th century is that we got the first um, educational provision for deaf people and for blind people. So uh, Thomas Braidwood uh, was a Scottish educationalist who um, opened uh, towards the end of the 18th century the first deaf academy in, um, in Edinburgh and then moved down to London and uh, opened the Braidwood Academy for the, for the Deaf in London, which was followed shortly afterwards by uh, a public school, so available to people without their own uh, financial resources uh, for young deaf people. Now, the important legacy of this was that Braidwood uh, developed a signing system for communication with the pupils. He was also very relaxed about deaf adults being um, teachers or tutors to uh, deaf pupils, and uh, the, the, this became known as the Braidwood system. It was first it was firstly known as the combined system, and it's actually the forerunner of British Sign Language, um, which is recognised as an official language today. And that's very important because. Um, there were many non-deaf people who were very suspicious of the use of sign language. They were suspicious of it because they couldn't understand it. And they tried to encourage or even force uh, deaf people to communicate uh, through lip reading. But uh, in the end, thanks to Braidwood, uh, the signing system uh, won out and, and, and deaf people today do have their own officially recognised uh, language, which is British Sign Language. What we also got was um, the first blind school, which was in uh, Liverpool in 1791, and that was founded by uh, Edward Rushton. Um, Rushton was from Liverpool and had worked on a, um, on a slave ship uh, going to the Caribbean, and he'd become very uh, disgusted by the uh, treatment of the slaves on the ship. He spent a lot of time with these slaves, many of whom had the condition of ophthalmia, which at the time was a very infectious eye disease which caused blindness. And Rushton actually uh, caught this disease and became blind himself. And when he came back to Liverpool, he actually um, began the Liverpool School for the Blind. And what this tried to do was offer some education, but also some work skills to enable young blind people as they moved into adulthood uh, to be able to survive in what was obviously quite a, um, quite a harsh uh, economic environment. And how do you think war has um, affected treatment of disabled people? War has always had a very significant impact and if we go back to the uh, Elizabethan period uh, and after the wars with um, Spain and the, uh, the fighting in Ireland at that time, there was a lot of concern about uh, disabled and mutilated soldiers who were coming back and uh, dying unsupported on the streets of London and in other towns across the country. And um, there was a, in fact a um, a, a hospital for disabled war veterans established in, in Berkshire at this time, although that's no longer um, extant. But this le led to the great military hospitals, to the uh, Greenwich Hospital, which was for aged and infirm and disabled um, sailors, and the Chelsea Hospital, um, which was for disabled and infirm ex-soldiers, a 
both of which certainly the buildings still survive today. Um, and there were then a number of naval and military hospitals uh, built around the country. If we move into the modern period, the First World War and the Second World War had an absolutely huge impact. Uh, at the end of the First World War, there were two million disabled war veterans coming back from the front to Britain. And at the end of the Second World War, there were 300,000 disabled um, military veterans, but also civilians. And by this time, we're talking about both men and women coming into the population. So this demanded a response and we're really going back a bit to the ambivalent attitudes of the medieval period um, here because in the early 20th century there was a very big debate going on about uh, degeneracy and the, the impact of uh, disabled people on the, uh, the population and the need to keep them segregated. And you then suddenly had this very big influx into society of young disabled men who were actually heroes and who'd sacrificed their bodies um, for the survival of the, of the nation as they were seen at the time. And so um, there had to be a very different response to this group. And there were great developments in um, surgery um, and uh, in areas such as plastic surgery and um, prosthetic or artificial limbs. But also the concept of rehabilitation was introduced, that it wasn't just a medical matter when somebody had become disabled, it was about uh, supporting that person to develop life skills and the confidence and the self-esteem to go back into the community and work and live with their families or whatever it was that they wanted to do. There were also tremendous knock-on effects in areas such as employment. So you've got things such as sheltered workshops. After the First World War, you had the uh, poppy manufacturing um, factories, which were staffed by disabled war veterans. And after the Second World War, you had the sheltered workshops of, um, of Remploy, uh, which again were targeted at, um, uh, at people who had become disabled as a result of their service in war. You had developments in housing where specialist housing was built for disabled war veterans and in some cases um, villages and small communities to which disabled soldiers were able to um, move uh, with their families um, and were able to uh, work and get their support in those communities uh, for the rest of their lives. And it also had a big impact on pensions, um, benefits and, and so on. There's just one thing I would say about that is that um, there was a bit of a disparity at times between how people who had been disabled as a result of war service were treated and how people who we might call mainstream people with disabilities who perhaps been born with a disability were treated. And there were some tensions between the two communities and, and um, uh, some uh, people who had been born with disabilities uh, felt that preferential treatment was given to um, military veterans. Um, but on the whole, the result of war was often for very significant advances to be made in approaches to disability. And of course, um, a very big uh, outcome from the Second World War, which is um, very important to us uh, today and at this precise time, uh, was Paralympic sport. Um, and uh, this actually was born at the uh, Stoke Mandeville um, Centre in Buckinghamshire, Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Buckinghamshire. And it was a young German-Jewish refugee neurosurgeon called Ludwig Gutmann who was dealing with uh, paralysed young men um, who had come back from war service. Um, and he introduced some significant new medical interventions which greatly increased the life expectancy of these young people. Uh, which meant that paralysed um, young people no longer died without within months of becoming paralysed. But he also recognised that a lot needed to be done around their, their mood, their self-image and their self-confidence. And he started it with um, dressing competitions where people had to get their pyjama tops off and their tops on and into their wheelchair uh, from their beds in the ward because what he was plugging into was the competitive spirit which was still there amongst these young men and this developed into games down at the pub such as skittles and darts 
And he then introduced games which could be played from a wheelchair, such as um, archery and um, basketball and netball and so on. And in 1948, at the same time as the uh, London Olympics, he invited a team of um, uh, paralysed men and women from the Star and Garter home, which was a home for um, disabled war veterans in uh, South London. And they came up to Stoke Mandeville and an archery competition was held on the lawns. And Gutman predicted at the time that this would become the equivalent of the Olympic Games for disabled people. And um, obviously, uh, we're seeing in front of us today just how spectacularly that prediction came true. And the Paralympic Games are now very much about elite sport. They're not about um, rehabilitation anymore. And they are the second biggest international sporting event in the world after the Olympic Games themselves. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Simon Jarrett, contributor to the Disability in Time and Place project, which will be published on the English Heritage website in December. You can read a piece written by Charlotte and Simon in our October issue, which is on sale now in print, on the Kindle and on the iPad. And now we have a short advert. We've got a busy BBC History magazine events programme coming up in the autumn that you might be interested in. We've got two lectures being held at the British Academy in central London. The first is on Thursday the 20th of September and features Mark Morris and Tracy Borman talking about the Norman Conquest. And the second, on Thursday the 18th of October, has Lawrence Reese and Ashley Jackson discussing the charisma of Hitler and Churchill. There are still some tickets left for both lectures, so go to historyextra.com forward slash lectures for booking details. Then, on Sunday the 4th of November, at the M Shed Museum in Bristol, we're holding a First World War History Day with Gary Sheffield, Hugh Strawn, Peter Caddick-Adams, Mark Connolly and William Philpott talking about the latest research on the war. Go to historyextra.com forward slash events for booking details for that one. Have you been thinking about a change from your current role? Or have you just graduated and want to begin a career in history? You may find that your keen interest and existing knowledge are exactly what employers are searching for. The new job section on historyextra.com will provide you with a growing selection of available history-focused roles. Why not check it out and discover if your passion could become your career? Visit www.historyextra.com forward slash jobs. You might just find what you're looking for. In his latest book, Oxford University lecturer David Priestland has taken a radical new approach to the history of the world. Instead of grouping people by class, nation, religion or ideology, he has divided the world into occupations, among them soldiers, sages and merchants. 
Priestland shows how the power of these groups has changed over the centuries, bringing with them progress, but also catastrophes when they overstretched. I caught up with David recently to find out the background to his ideas, and also how the merchant caste might be responsible for our current financial malaise. In your book, you argue that there are three main castes that have held power throughout history. Yeah. Could could you please explain uh, for our listeners who these castes are? Yeah. Um, There are, uh, as I call them, merchants, soldiers and sages. Um, And by caste, I mean occupation groups, if you like, um, who have particular value systems and ways of looking at the world. And I think in in a way there are actually four main castes. There are merchants, soldiers, sages and workers, but workers have had an influence on history, of course, but have had slightly less power than the other three. Um, And merchants are, you know, traders, people who are interested in commerce and and they have a particular flexible, market-oriented, competitive view of the world. Um, Sages are interested in expertise um, and, you know, they're people like... um, I mean, originally they were priests, but they then became professionals, bureaucrats. Today they're teachers or um, uh, civil service mandarins. Uh, Soldiers, of course, have been very important in world history, still very important in many countries, perhaps a bit less important in Europe today. And workers um, who have tended to have a rather more egalitarian worldview um, and yes, they have been very important in world history, but have, and particularly in the 20th century, but um, I think recently have rather lost rather a lot of power. How did you first formulate this idea of these three castes? Well, it's actually the term caste, of course, is something we uh, connect with, associate with India. And it was actually travelling to India that um, gave me the, the idea um, because. When we think of caste, we think of a a rigid caste system, and that does exist in some places in India. Um, It's not so rigid as it used to be. There is caste discrimination, but that's not what people often mean by caste. They, uh, Indians often talk about society um, using these terms. Oh, yes, he's a Brahmin, i.e. he's a sort of, you know, sagely person, um, or he's a, 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 a kshatriya, he's a warrior type person. Um, and of course, in India, these things mean something in that people often have come from those social groups. But these terms still mean something in the society. And I thought um, to use those terms to, to to explain the ways in which history works in many societies, I think is, is quite an insightful thing to do. And in many societies, it wasn't just India, but in many uh, pre-modern societies, that's exactly how people thought about society, that there were, there were, there were prayers, um, uh, fighters, and workers, for instance, in the West. That was uh, the, the three orders of society. Now, so, so I think it's a useful analytical term. That's not to say that I think that's a good way of looking at society, <laughs> a good, a, that, that it's necessarily about higher hierarchies or or about inequality or that inequality is inevitable it's all i want to say is that occupation tends to shape the way we think even today so if we work in a commercial or set up in a commercial organization we're likely to have quite merchant views of the world if we work in a more uh, sagely organisation, as I say, like a university, say, or a, or a social work department and a council, or that's likely to give us a more sagely view of the world. Um, and that, I think, is, is quite an insight, really. And it's something that sociologists, you know, would, would agree with. So do you feel that these views are even perhaps more important than things such as political ideologies, nationalism, religion? Well, no, of course, these ideas are hugely important, but they're often related, they can be related to these occupational worldviews. So, for instance, political ideologies, if we look today at uh, political ideologies, left and right, and now I wouldn't say we're a particularly ideologically divided society in the sense that previous societies have been ideologically divided, but, you know, uh, sociologists would agree that people who are more sagely, work for public sector organisations, are more um, professional, 
uh, tend to have a rather more left-wing view of the world than people who are in the commercial world. And so I would say that ideologies often map onto these what I call castes. And at certain time, of course, we are all bound together by nationalism. Nationalism does bind castes together. Religion binds castes together. But often that nationalism differs depending on your, uh, if you like, your caste values, your occupational values. So you can have left-wing nationalisms, right-wing nationalisms. Certain periods of history, for instance, if we look at the 1920s in Germany, you had nationalism was very much connected with uh, sages and merchants and workers were not very nationalistic and so you know in a way yes you do get these ideologies but and they are important in history very important but often uh, they are very strongly affected by these caste views can you think of some some examples of times when one of these particular groups has come to the fore in, in, say, running a country or a continent or something? Yeah, I think, I mean, each country has their own uh, traditions. I would say that uh, Britain is a pretty, has been a commercial place for quite a long time, and merchant, merchant groups and merchant value systems have been quite very influential in Britain, more so, say, than in France or in Germany. Um, in the United States, I would say they've been even more powerful and important. So each country has its own, if you like, caste balance and caste, caste alliances. Um, but also particular eras, it cast, particular caste groups become dominant in particular eras. And I would say that since the 1980s, if you like, the merchant has become very important internationally. Many people, because of the failures of the 1970s of the sages and the workers, if you like, the failures of of that system, which was very pro-sage and pro-worker in, in that post-war period, because of that, merchants, if you like, came to the fore and said, you've got to give us power, you've got to give us influence. And so merchant values um, of, you know, flexibility, competitiveness, all of those things uh, have been very dominant. And I would argue that that is one of the main reasons for, for our crisis today. So you think that because of the rise of the merchants, has that led sort of directly to the, the economic crisis that we've, we've experienced about the last four or five years? I would agree. I, I think that's true because, you know, in a way the merchant, of course, in, in some ways, the merchant can say, has, can say, well, I'm creating a very culturally egalitarian society. Merchants are often very culturally egalitarian because they want to trade with people um, of any race or, eth or gender or whatever. You know, everybody's a part of a democratic consumer society, as they say. Um, and so they claim to be very democratic and egalitarian culturally, but economically they're not egalitarian. Merchants, market people aren't egalitarian economically because they say, well, you know, competition means you've got to have inequalities, you've got to, punt, uh, you've got to reward people who are flexible and hardworking. And that inequality causes huge economic problems. And I think that is what's happened in recent years, that... Uh, economic inequalities have created a system where um, ordinary people have not been earning very much or wages have stagnated of ordinary people. Wealthy people have been earning much more. They've channeled that those funds into, into speculation um, and making super profits. Um, and banks have then lent ordinary people money to to keep their living standards up and keep growth going. And that's really what's been happening in the 90s and 2000s, that banks have been compensating for stagnating wages. And that can't go on forever. And that's what happened in 2008. That bubble burst. People were over-indebted. Uh, people have been encouraged to take on those debts by banks and governments to keep the economy going. And that is really what this crisis has been about and i would say that's very similar to what happened in the us in the 20s and the, the, with the wall street crash do you believe that, that these problems will lead to one of the other groups either the sages or the soldiers taking over well i think that often what happens i mean i think that there are long-term developments in history where certain caste groups and their values decline um 
like and i think one of the big stories of the last 200 years 100 years is the decline of the aristocracy and the decline of that view of the world that very undemocratic inegalitarian view of the world but at the same time you get zigzags you get castes if you like coming to power and becoming too dominant and imploding for various reasons or not being able to solve economic crises or political crises and then people react against that group and and think that um, that hasn't solved these problems the merchant came to power because you know it, it other partly because other other castes seem to be failing now the merchant has failed and clearly failed in 2008 i think we're in for another reassessment but the question is when that happens and i think we're in a sort of interim doldrums period if you like where people don't quite know they're still very much influenced by merchant ideology they can't see the alternatives it often takes generational change for the change to happen you know in the 19 it took a long time after the 1929 1930s crises for a new order to emerge after world war 2 and of course it was a rather traumatic time and that was partly to do with generational change that it was the people who grew up during the economic crisis of the 20s and 30s who realized never again we're not going to allow merchants to dominate to this extent now i hope we're going to have a caste change before before the 2030s when the current young generation come to power but it may not be before the 2030s that that happens it, it's often only when people grow up w- seeing a problem in their youth that they change they're willing to change their views people of my generation i mean my thought is you know people we're often a bit set in our ways it's quite difficult for us uh, on the people who you know the politicians who of, of my generation to to see an alternative uh, and and therefore it can take quite a long time for intellectual and political change to happen do you think there is a preferred caste or combination of these castes to rule the country is there a one that's best suited to government do you think well i think that i'm personally very sympathetic to i mean i'm a uh, somebody on the left i see the worker cast with um its uh, uh, values of, of of egalitarianism um very appe- is very appealing um and i think this society should be more egalitarian um and i don't just mean in terms of economic egal- equality i mean also in terms of equality at work for instance and power equalities so i would say that you know i i think that ultimately in the longer term one would hope one would move in that we'd hope we could move in that direction um in the but of course it's quite difficult to combine worker democracy and equality with the needs of international economies um i think you need you clearly do need a merchant element communism tried to get rid of the merchant completely and it was very difficult to maintain uh, economic um growth and 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 achieve things economically under that system but also the sage i think we we do need some sort of coordination we need sages to you know governments and experts to keep the economy coordinate the economy so in the in in the short to medium term i would say we need more of a caste balance and sages have got to have more power than they have more the merchant really has been too influential and sages have got to have more power to coordinate economies to invest in long term education um we can't rely on the market and the merchant to do everything because the merchant is pretty short termist you know and that flexibility has advantages sometimes but it also has strong disadvantages which we're seeing today and do you believe there's a role for the soldier caste as well or have they sort of had their peak perhaps in the world wars of the 20th century well i think that you do i'm not a i'm not a pacifist and i think you do need warriors um you need soldiers um to for defense i think the problem but really it it, it would be best if they are not uh, in any dominant position and they can become very dominant as they have in 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 world wars of course you also need 
in, in some ways, warriors have a justification in, say, areas where there is severe injustice. For instance, Nelson Mandela, of course, was was part of a uh, an organisation that believed in violence to fight injustice. So I'm not saying warriors are always the the, the warrior caste is 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 unnecessary. But I think we or warrior values are unnecessary. But um, there can be a problem when warriors become too dominant. And I would say that they can become dominant very quickly. For instance, after 9-11, I would say, in the United States. If you remember, people very rapidly after 9-11 in the US said, we've got to abandon all of this sort of easygoing uh, commercialism. We've got to move towards warrior values and they trusted in this very warrior figure george w bush and donald rumsfeld and the military budget expanded massively warrior values of vengeance and all of those ideas came back into vogue so i think warriors you know they they can be pretty powerful even you know in, in in our own societies and of course they're very powerful and too powerful in many societies such as uh in, in outside the west I and mean, we can see in you know in african wars or, or or particularly in the middle east we can find militaries being rather too powerful what impact would you say the the rise of democracy certainly in the west has has had on this power balance has have these three groups competed to get popular approval they have. I would say that democracy has been very important in, in, in increasing the power of worker, the worker group, the worker caste, and in uh, in a way the, the the battles of trade unions for the vote and for for, for franchise for the vote, and also for welfare states. Welfare states were very much the result of the increasing power of the working class and worker egalitarian values. So democracy has played an enormous role, really, um, in changing that caste balance. But uh, in a way, the high point of that worker equality was really between the 50s and the, if you like, the late 40s and the 70s. Um, after then, I would say uh, that has declined. And I would also say our democracy is in quite a lot of trouble. Um, our political uh, the po political democracy in a way a lot of people are bowing out of democracy they're not interested they feel we're run by elites rightly uh, they're not participating and to an extent that that explains why we have this inegalitarian system because people a lot of people think it's not worth voting because you know politicians have been bought by business and to some extent they're right of course uh, particularly in the united states where politicians have to raise lots of money and have to have to become very merchant-like in order to raise that money and and they're in, in thrall to merchants for that reason so so in that case these costs can even then be still be more powerful than the wider public in a democratic system well that's right i mean i would say the costs in a way we're all i i, I wouldn't necessarily contrast the castes to the public i would say that we're all in a way members of castes um we're all part of castes you know when i say the merchant i don't just mean a a a top businessman or a banker or business person or a banker i i also mean a small business person and a perhaps somebody in quite an ordinary job in a commercial organization when i talk about sages i don't just mean a civil servant mandarin i mean a social worker or a teacher um and um so i think that yes i think that yes elites have become much more important in recent years partly because the worker caste and worker values have have declined and because merchant values have become more dominant and therefore inequalities have become more dominant that i think explains why elites have these these sort of elite groups have become so influential and people still feel so cut off from politics do you feel there's, there's a, a reason why the merchant class became so dominant from the 1970s onwards well i think i think there are various reasons but i would say that one of the important ones was the crisis of the 70s the economic crisis and it was 
felt that, I mean, many thought that the problem was that the system had been, the post-war system was very bureaucratic, hidebound. States had tried to plan things and had failed. Uh, workers had become very radical. They and, and there was lots of conflict over tr uh, wages and trade unions become more powerful, too powerful. So, in a way, that was a perception by many people that with the inflationary crises of the 70s, many people blamed the sage and the worker. And... And to an extent, the warrior as well for the you know Cold War, you know wars in Vietnam, and and um, the Cold War, and and believed that the merchant would would rescue them. The merchant looked very. Uh, a would would the argument was that the merchant um, would be able to create economic growth, and also the merchant has the. Uh, has the advantage of being very flexible, of course, and also very culturally democratic, as I said. Many people thought that the 60-70 system was very, very stuffy, um, very boffin-like and bureaucratic, and the merchant would get rid of that. And many, many people who um, saw themselves as part of the creative middle classes, the sort of 60s people, also thought that that era had become too bureaucratic and it had become too bureaucratic so the merchant in a way uh, offered something different um, to many groups and I think that that was the main reason I think why the merchant became so powerful. Do you think people understand that they are part of these groups or is this going on at a very subconscious level? I think it's quite a subconscious level, yes. Um, and I know people like don't and I, I don't like being pigeonholed. Inevitably, I don't like being <laughs> pigeonholed myself. But I think it helps us to understand where people are coming from, and it is often subconscious. And of course, there are lots of reasons why people have the views they have, and that can be to do with their families, their education, their ethnic identity, their gender. You know, lots of things matter when it comes to the formation of political groups, political ideas, and generation matters, as I said. Generation is hugely important in, you know, the experience of one's generation. But I also think that occupation, what you do at work matters quite a lot, because if you want to do well at work, if you want promotions, you've, and you've, you've got to get on with your colleagues, you've got to get on with people you know and so you, you you work with so even if you start off in a job not having a particular worldview you're often subconsciously you have to adapt um you have to go along with what people think who are working with you and work is pretty important in a lot of our lives of course there is family but you know but but work is quite important um and yeah, so I think it is often subconscious, um, and people often subconsciously they start off being quite sceptical when they start off in their work. They start off being sceptical of their of their values of their workplace, but it's quite difficult to resist it actually if you want to do well at work, unless you're going to be a sort of grouch and disagree with your colleagues all the time. I mean, certainly you know people, of course, some people do, but but um, it's quite difficult to to retain a particular value system if it's if it's a very much dif very different from that of your work co-workers do you have an idea why this hasn't been this view hasn't been put forward as much in the past as compared to things as a reason for people holding the views they do yeah it's an interesting question uh, at one time of course it it was a very common way of looking at things and a very you know ancient the ancients thought about it in a way cast sounds like a very old-fashioned idea um i think that of course, one of the main rival views has been class, um, and in a way that that did make sense. That seemed to make sense. I the notion that it was primarily economic position, how, what property, whether you own property or not, it was that that mattered, and Marx popularised that, and that did seem to make sense. In, during the industrial age, you know, in the nineteenth century, from the sort of mid to late nineteenth century up until the seventies, and. Um, so people, the concept of proletariat, bourgeoisie, these things seem to make quite a lot of sense. Then with the changes in the economy in the 70s, the decline of the industrial working class, they, that made rather less sense to people. And everybody piled in and said, you know, Marxist categories don't work. And instead, they moved towards uh, ethnic identity, gender identity, identity politics. That was the next big thing. 
Um, and of course, that does make sense to an extent, but that's really how we often think today. And uh, that, but, but but actually, I think that. That, we've gone too far in that direction in terms of analysis. I think so our social occupation matters a lot. If you ask sociologists what matters, they would agree with me. They wouldn't talk about worker soldier, merchant soldier sage worker, of course. They wouldn't use that terminology. But they would say, they would agree with me that what they might call occupational class as opposed to Marxist class, they would agree with me that those that's what divides people. That's what determines people's politics. And I think that's a much better way of understanding things than the traditional class terminology. So instead of bourgeoisie, you know, the term bourgeoisie is much too broad. You know, there are big differences within the bourgeoisie between sages and merchants. Um, and also, I think... You know, the, the classic British class terminology we use, upper middle class, lower middle class. Again, that, that, that obscures differences within profe between professions as well. So, yeah, it sounds a bit old fashioned, the sort of terms I'm using. It's, or it sounds a bit Dungeons and Dragons-ish, perhaps. And a lot of people will be very sceptical about it. But actually, it's just a way of translating quite an up-to-date sociological view into a more catchy language. That was David Priestland of Oxford University. His book, Merchant Soldier Sage, A New History of Power, has recently been published by Alan Lane. Look out for a review of the book in the magazine soon. I'm sure you'll have views on David's ideas, so do get in touch to let us know what you think on email, podcast at historyextra.com, or on one of our social media channels. That's about all for this week's episode. We'll be back again next week when I'll be finding out about the historical antecedents to the LIBOR scandal and Charlotte Hodgman will be delving into the history of gas. Do join us for that. And in the meantime, keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, for blogs, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget, you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.